We have a mission statement that is written on our doors. We have a mission statement that's written on our wall. My question is, is this mission statement written on the DNA of our church and on our hearts? And I think this is very, very important because this mission statement is not anything different than what is replicated throughout the scriptures and preached in every opportunity where the local church is brought up in the New Testament. So notice that it says here, loving people to life, and we've done that all caps on purpose. Let me walk you through this. Loving people. Why? Because love is the means of which we reach people. Why do we understand that? John 3.16, for God so loved who? Who's that include? Everybody. If God loves people, we should love people. If we don't love people, he's not the one that's wrong. Everybody with me? We're wrong. And there's where the soul searching, the confession of sin, the desire for the Holy Spirit to change us, the renewal of the mind with the word of God needs to take place so that we would have a better grasp on loving people. Because people are unlovable. And it takes a supernatural love to love them. But I promise that if this statement said, hating people to life in Christ, it would not work. Guilting people to life in Christ, that doesn't work either. It's got to be a Holy Spirit wrought love. So if you wouldn't mind in the little box next to love where the arrow points to, just write the means. This is the means of which to get this accomplished. Love has got to be the motivator. If we do not love, this mission statement will not be accomplished. Notice the next one. Loving who? Who's that include? Everybody. All. Every person. There is not one person that Jesus didn't die for. and There is not one person that God does not love on the face of the earth. Not one. So the people are the goal. Love is God's means that motivated him to provide a savior for people. Reaching people was his goal. How do I bring people from where they have separated and alienated themselves to myself? My love motivates me to provide a way to reach the goal. People, the goal, right in that box, the goal. Now to life in Christ. Spiritually speaking, there are two types of life in the scriptures. The first type is everlasting life or eternal life, depending on if you have the King James or the New American Standard. Number one is eternal life. And this deals with your salvation, or we would also say more specifically justification. Your justification, salvation. And this is particularly for lost people. Dead people need life. Would you agree? Why do only five people agree with me? Sorry, can't do two things at one time. Aren't you a doctor? Hold on, don't tell me what's wrong. I gotta write this down. Number one is eternal life. People need to be declared righteous before God. The only way they can be declared righteous before God is... Through Jesus Christ. That's the only way. He is the only way. So in order for someone to have life everlasting, Jesus has got to provide it, but who's got to tell it? We do. So when we are loving people, there's the means. People are the goal. We're trying to get lost people 
to life in Christ. We are telling them the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus and we are calling on them to believe so that they will be brought into a relationship with him. So for number one, if you also wanted to write the fact that the lost need a relationship, there's many things you can put here. Or the lost need to be brought into a righteous position. Whatever you want to put there, the number one thing about people having eternal life is the fact that the lost need to be saved, okay? Number two type of life, is the abundant life. I came to give them life and life abundantly. Who said that? Good. It was not Theodore Roosevelt. Jesus Christ said, I came that they might have number one life, eternal life, and they have it more abundantly. Number two life. Notice that Jesus doesn't just want to get you in the door. He doesn't just want you surviving past the threshold. He wants us thriving. And so abundant life deals with sanctification. Want to write that down? That's a really good $5 Scrabble word. Alex, what is sanctification? Surely you use that on Jeopardy at some point. Sanctification. And this is for believers, the saved. So number one, salvation, we're seeking to to get the lost saved. Number two, salvation, we're seeking to get the saved saved, to keep getting saved, to keep having our minds conform to Scripture, to keep having our hearts tenderized by the grace of God, to keep having our wills submitted to him so that he can do amazing things through us. Or to the left of that, and I know there's not much room to write next to one or two, let me give you the two big words that are concerning of the church. Number one deals with evangelism. Sharing the gospel with the lost. Number two deals with discipleship. The means is to love God's goal of people into an evangelism situation or a discipleship situation, but it's got to have what? Anybody know? What's the rest of the statement? Christ. And next to that block right there, you want to write the only solution. There is no other method, plan, formulation, curriculum, call it what you want to, that is going to satisfy this divine and supernatural means. Christ is always the solution every time. Now, let me ask you this question. I know this is kind of putting you on the spot, but let's just talk about it. We don't have Sunday school today. We're good. Is there any part of this mission statement that you would have disagreement with biblically? I don't care personally. But the question is, is biblically, do you find it conflicting with Scripture? I don't. Would you agree this is a good thing? Is loving people a good thing? Even though people aren't unlovable or are unlovable sometimes, loving them is still good, right? Well, yeah. Thank God Jesus loved me. You want to talk about an unlovable person? Good grief. And notice, he didn't just bring me to eternal life, but he's also cultivating in me abundant life. Praise God for that. Good grief. I can't do that. You can't do that. Pastor Steve can't do that. Only the Holy Spirit through the work of the Word of God can do that in people. But notice, the Holy Spirit's job is always to point the unbeliever or the believer to one thing, and that is Jesus Christ alone, period. All the time, every time. I think this is a good thing. Now, before everybody gets wrecked, set it aside for a second. Let's pull out our Bibles. 
And let's take a look at 2 Corinthians 3. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you what we're doing here. All of chapter 3 is my introduction. Because, and I'm going to go through it quickly, because I can't, we, we can't understand the things that he's talking about in chapter 4 if we don't know what chapter 3 is talking about, okay? So we're going to walk through it briskly and hit the little high points there so we understand what we're doing so that the mindset is right walking into chapter 4 so that we see the significance of what this looks like, okay? Now, look at chapter 3, verse 1. And I don't have my head mic. Forgive me. So I'm going to have to stay back here, stick back here. I'm sorry, but I probably will beat the pulpit a lot. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? Now, here's what's happened. We know about 1 Corinthians, right? Right? Okay, just making sure, because we're in 2 Corinthians, so if you don't know, there is a 1 Corinthians. But there was also a letter that was written before that that we don't have as part of the biblical record. And what seems to have happened between the time of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians is some scoundrels came in and decided that they were going to raise a lot of doubts about Paul's authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ to speak the truth into their lives. And so when he says, do we need to come to you and have these letters of commendation? Do I need somebody's signature to authenticate the fact that I am sent from Jesus Christ to minister to you and to love you and to pour into your life. That's kind of where we're picking up in the middle of this in chapter 3. And look what he says in verse 2. He says, you are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by all men. In other words, the evidence of the message that we've shared with you, being evangelism, and the discipleship that we've poured into you is overflowing out of your life. And because the Holy Spirit is working in your life, that's the authentication that our ministry is real. Everybody with me? Okay. Verse 3. Notice he says, It's being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. In other words, not by the law, but by grace. Now, if, this is, if you want something that's really going to help you with what we're going to look at, if you have your pen, and it's not sacrilegious to write in your Bible, not at all, but if you want to write next to there where it says not on tablets of stone, if you want to put like maybe just a little A there and circle it, there's a there's an A thing because we're going to do a lot of A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B. Paul's going to show us that. Not on tablets of stone, but B, circle, on tablets of human hearts. So you've got A, considering the law and works of the flesh. And you've got B, dealing with the concept of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. It's a grace-oriented, spirit-motivated thing that takes place here. And he's going to show us the differences between the two and that why it matters to us today. Now watch this. Verse 6. Who also made us adequate as servants of the new covenant. A, not of the letter, because that's the law, so there's your A part. But B, of the what? Spirit. It's not of the law, but it's of the Spirit. Now notice, Paul is talking about what makes up his ministry. It's not just the grocery list that you check off and then you can go through the checkout and go home. It is a Spirit-oriented, supernaturally motivated, power-endowed-from-God type of thing. So notice, not of the letter, B, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, that's A. And the letter does kill, does it not? It exposes sin. 
And there's no hope in the law because we can't keep it. But B, the Spirit gives what? Let me ask you a question. What are the two types of life that the Spirit gives? Eternal life and abundant life. Everybody see how that works. So whether it be you're introducing a lost person to Christ, evangelism, or a saved person is getting saved. And I know that freaks people out when I say that. But discipleship is taking place. You're starting to recognize that the things that you held on into this world don't matter as much as what it is to give them up so that you can more fully serve the Lord. Regardless of what it is, the Spirit is the power that motivates behind both of those things. You will never convince somebody into being saved. You will never intellectually dismantle them to the point, well, I guess I have no other choice but just to accept Jesus right now. That will never happen. Okay? If somebody has been just intellectually won to Christ, they're not saved. What you find is it's a Spirit-led deal. But we have got to be Spirit-led people if we're going to be used for a Spirit-led work, whether that be evangelism or discipleship. Is everybody with me? Okay, I might need another cup of coffee. I don't know. Verse 7, right? <laughs> wow. By the way, somebody broke my clock. So I'm going to pretend it doesn't work. Okay. Verse 7. But in the ministry of death. Now watch this. That's A, the law. The law is a ministry of death because you can't be saved by it. So that's A. But in the ministry of death, and letters engraved on stones, notice it came with what? Glory. Did the law not come with glory? Did God's glory not shine? Did it not leave such an impression on Moses where he said, I got to cover up my face. People aren't going to handle it. Does everybody remember that in the Old Testament? So he had to wear a veil. So notice, the law, even though it was a ministry of death, it came with glory. But look what it says. So that the sons of Israel could not look intently on the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was. Now that's significant because look what he says now. How will the ministry of the Spirit, there's B, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? Notice it's not that the law is bad, wrong, tainted, incorrect, false. No, it's not that. It's the fact that now through the Spirit, there is a ministry that stands in the church age that is over that of the law. And the Spirit is in the thick of it all. Look what he says here, verse 9. For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, A, that's the law. All the law can do is condemn. Look what it says. Much more. Everybody remember from Romans taking those steps? Much more. Much more. It's more here. Does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory? Why? Because it's by the Spirit. Now watch this next one here. For what indeed Sorry, for indeed what had glory, that's the law, A, in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. That's B, that's the ministry of the Spirit. And look what it says in verse 11. For if that which fades away, A, there's the law, was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. That's B with the Spirit. Does everybody see the A-B difference between law and Spirit, law and Spirit? Now, here's why this is important, because these verses, 8, 9, 10, and 11, have given you this incredible description, and sad to say it's a little long, but I want you to grasp it. If you want to write it down, that's fine, but I want you to mark some things in the text that are important. Look at A, or look at verse 8. How will the ministry of the Spirit, everybody see that? 
The first thing we need to know about this new ministry that supersedes the glorious law is the fact that, number one, it's a ministry of the Spirit, period. That's the first thing we need to know. So when we talk about what this new church age ministry is, first thing, it's of the Spirit. Look at verse 9. For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the, here it is, mark it, the ministry of, what's the word? Righteousness. It's not only a ministry of the Spirit, it's a ministry of righteousness. That's an important thing for us to grasp. So it's of the Spirit, and it's of righteousness. Now look at number 10, verse 10. For indeed, what had glory, that's the law, in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. So it's a surpassing glory, and we see the whole use of the much more language going on here. Look at verse 11. For, here's the explanation. If that which fades away was with glory, there's the law, much more that which, what's the word? Remains. Remains. That which abides. That which sticks around. What'd you have, Vern? That which endures. It's the Greek word, stick with it. That's not a Greek word. But it's the idea, the fact that it's here. It's here to stay. It's not going anywhere. It's the fact that now that it's been established, and how was it established? We know through the death and resurrection of Christ. And now the Spirit has come in Acts chapter 2 to give birth to the church. This is now the enduring ministry of the church. But notice it is a spirit-led, full of righteousness, surpassing glory, enduring ministry. Does everybody see that? It is a much more ministry. Are you with me? I know you're like, I'm with you, but I don't know where you're going yet. Stick with me. We're going, okay? Now watch this. Verse 12. Therefore, having such a hope. Now what is the hope here? It's the much more spirit-led, righteousness-enduring ministry of the Spirit. Since we have that hope. Now, does everybody see there where he says, therefore, having such a hope, what's the next word? We. Now, is Paul just talking about himself and his ministry team? No. In fact, what you find out is, is he's talking to the Corinthians. Now, let me ask you a question. If someone needed to be If you needed to send out missionaries to share the gospel, or if you wanted to start a discipleship situation in your church, how many of the Corinthians would you pull from to be in charge of that? Think about what you know about the people of Corinth. Zero. Zero. Why? Because they're going to eat a lot and they're going to get drunk because they all think they can speak in tongues. I mean, we have all kinds of a list of accusations to disqualify our brothers and sisters in Christ from Corinth. Do you recognize that Paul doesn't do that? Paul lets them know, we have this ministry. It's not something we came up with. We sat down and we designed on our own. God's given it to us because the church age is a special time, unlike any other dispensation of which God wants to do supernatural, spirit-wrought work that leads people to the pinnacle of Christ Jesus. What I'm trying to tell you is, is right now in history, we have an incredible opportunity and we have since Acts chapter two and the church, large C, spanning history has largely spoiled it and has not been faithful. And this is the ministry that Paul's saying, don't you guys see we have this and it's special and it's weighty and it's significant and it matters. It matters. Now, let me tell you a dumb story. How many, huh? Because it's got a good illustration, it fits. It's dumb. None of you are going to care about this. Raise your hand. 
I don't believe that for a second um, about anything. Let me, just, just, just work with me here. How many people have heard of the 80s hair band Striper? Christian metal band. Okay, great. All the rest of you are like, I don't know what's going on. So listen to this. Art, Art, Art Cam. I played it for Art one time in the car. I thought he was going to open the passenger side and jump out. It's great. <laughs> so the year after we first moved here, we decided we would visit Green Bay for the first time. And it, how it's that? Just somebody give me an amen. Great, yeah. By the way, if they win today, everybody wear your Packers stuff next Sunday. Okay. So we decided we'd go up there. But what was great about it was Striper had booked a show at a bar up there. And so I got tickets to go. And I didn't just get tickets to go, but I went ahead and got the meet and greet so I could meet them. Because as a seven-year-old kid that was surrounded by nothing but unrighteousness in my childhood, I mean, I'm listening to Kiss Records and all kinds of crazy, terrible stuff being fed into my brain. These were the only people that were speaking any sort of truth about Jesus Christ into my life. And so I wanted the opportunity to shake a hand and say thank you. She got my picture with them and all that cool stuff. And here's the thing. You can ask my wife. I never win anything. I mean, I'm like the sad sack on the side of the road, okay? I never win a thing. She'll tell you. Ask her. She's like, no, it's really bad, okay? But here's the thing. They did a drawing at the, at the meet and greet when I met them, and I actually got the opportunity to go on stage with them at the very last song. Yeah, so there's a picture of me going, like that, right? And like all these long-haired guys are around me. It's great. So here's the thing. I'm getting to the point of the story. They just got a new band, guy in the band a couple of years ago that's playing bass guitar for them. And he used to play bass in another band way back in the 80s, okay? So everybody's videos and MTV and whatever else stuff going on. So when I got the chance to meet him, his name is Perry Richardson. And I said, it's so good to meet you. I said, do you realize that now you're part of something significant? Because when that band, regardless of how they look and regardless of how they sound, when they got on stage, they're throwing Bibles out to the crowd and they're talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Don't care if it's a bar crowd or not. Don't care if people are drinking alcohol or not. They're talking about Christ to people. And I told him, do you realize you're doing something significant now? This is something that matters. This isn't something where you're just making money and going home. This has lasting endurance. Do you realize that that has been the gift of the church ever since Acts chapter 2? Do you realize that this matters? Do you realize that the church is not a place that you go on Sunday? It's who you are. And this is what Paul's trying to get across to us. This ministry, every single believer has it. Whether you want it or not, whether you encourage it or foster it or, or, or build yourself up in it or are built up in this ministry or not, you have it. And to neglect it is horrible. We have it. It's ours. And it was given freely. It was entrusted to us to steward. So this is the whole move that he's getting at. We are now, as part of the church, believers of Christ, in Christ, our new spotless location, we're actually doing stuff that matters now. We're doing stuff that has an eternal weight of glory. Now watch how this moves forward. Therefore, verse 12, having such a hope, presently speaking, we use great boldness in our, what? Uh-oh, this is something we talk about. This is something that fills the mouth. This is submitting our vocal cords for the service of the Lord. Now watch this. We speak boldly in our speech. 
Notice, we're not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. Verse 14, but their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the old covenant, and that's A, that's the law, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in who? In Christ. Only Christ can remove that old veil. Now watch this. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. In other words, A, when Moses is read, A, the law, a veil lies over their heart. It's a heart issue. That's the problem. It's callous and it's covered. In some way, it's been concealed. Verse 16, but whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, let me harp on this for just a second. This word turns is not metanoia. It's not repentance. This word is epistrepho, and it actually means to turn around or to turn back. It has nothing to do with the idea of repentance whatsoever. Repentance is a change of mind. So notice what it's dealing with here. Whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Does everybody see that people have a personal responsibility to respond to the gospel? Does everybody see that the problem is is that the law will only harden the heart? And if that's as far as you go, it's only a ministry of condemnation and there is no hope there even though the law is perfect and it's telling the truth about my condition. This is why there has to be a spirit-led full of righteousness, enduring much more glorious ministry that has to use speech to speak into people's lives so that they will hear the truth and they will turn from other things, the things of this world, the things they think make them righteous, the things that they think give them a good status, that their sin really isn't that bad. Well, I'm not as bad as the next guy. And recognize that they need to get a full glimpse of the Lord. Recognize that there is salvation in no one else. That's what we're talking about here. Now notice, he's still dealing with what we have and how we deal with this and what this ministry is. He says here in verse 17, sorry, into verse 16, when they turn to the Lord, the veil is taken away. It's removed. In other words, there's the responsibility for them to respond. And when they respond in faith, the barrier is gone. Verse 17. Now the Lord is the what? The Spirit. Don't discredit the Holy Spirit as as somebody less than the Trinity, less than the Godhead. The Holy Spirit is God. The Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? We memorize this. See, that's why I had you guys memorize it. I thought the Lord was going to be like, yeah, use this. And I'll say it's not. And then I look goofy giving you guys a verse we're not even covering. Now it matters. With the Lord is liberty. Why? Because with the law is bondage. Because when you're living your life apart from Christ, that's bondage. Because when you're trying to make it on your own and muster your own righteousness and do enough different things that religious people are telling you to do so that you'll be accepted some way before a guy who's not a deity and may very well have a pointy head under that hat. I don't know. Nobody thinks that's funny? Coneheads? Okay, never mind. But in doing so, People think that we're doing a good job. We're just keeping our nose to the grindstone. No, the church has been given a ministry that supersedes that. And it's a ministry that is spoken. And I want to tell you, I think that's where the failure is. Is the fact that this new spirit wrought ministry is not being spoken. And yet we see there is the need, verse 12, great boldness in speech. Where do you find it? 
Let me ask the question this way. Don't raise your hand. Don't give any numbers. Don't say anything. How many times the past two, three, let me give you a month. How many times in the past month have you shared Jesus Christ with somebody? Only you can answer that. Only God knows the answer that you give. But this ministry that we have is a spirit-wrought righteousness, enduring much more ministry that comes together in the presentation of the gospel of God's grace. And I don't know if you've noticed the condition of the world lately, but they are needy. They need Christ. They think they need a lot of other things. But all of these are substitutes to Jesus. Wasn't that a little harsh? No. I can't help it if the truth hurts people. Our world is rejecting Christ. And my greatest concern is not that they do that. That's what the world does. My greatest concern is that we're letting them. If you know who Charles Spurgeon is, great preacher in the 1800s in England, he said it this way, if people are going to go to hell, then let the devil drag them over my dead body. We're so scared to death of offending people. We're so scared to death. We let, their, we let that fear and we let all that control us to keep us from being obedient saints. And I think we have to ask the question, is God pleased with that? Because if I'm really loving people to life in Christ in an evangelism sense, I'm neglecting a lot of that equation. And I'm not getting the results that God desires, nor that his son died to provide, should we be obedient to him. Now, this is going to touch a good nerve, and we haven't gotten there yet to cover it, but how many of you husbands love it when your wife is just obstinate and disobedient? I mean, let's just be honest. It just turns you on when she backmouths you, talks to you like a dog. You don't shut your mouth, I'm going to hit you with this pan. I mean, I don't know what he does, but my wife doesn't do that. Please don't ever think that. <laughs> but husbands, raise your hand if you love that. If that's just great. You, got, you guys know those two guys that hang out in the balcony and the Muppets? It's Jeff and Jay right over here. Because I can picture them looking at each other going, Terrible. But no, no one loves that friction situation. It doesn't make things move smoothly. Nothing gets accomplished. Everything is in a deadlock. So if the church is the bride of Jesus Christ, why don't we listen to what he's telling us? Why don't we defer to our husband saying, you know what, whatever you want, send me. I'll do it. I provided everything for you to do it. Great. My concern is that we're not willing. Look what it says here, verse 18. Because here's how the heart change happens for the believer. Notice it says, but... So here's like a 180 thing. Notice the next word is we. So it's inclusive of his audience and himself. We all, everyone, with unveiled face. Well, how in the world did that happen? Well, that happened whenever we turned to the Lord and the veil was taken away because we heard about the gospel of grace, okay? So believers have an unveiled face. Look what it says here. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Now, some of you have there as in a glass, but think of it this way. It's almost like you got a snow globe. 
And you're holding it up and you're looking at it and you're watching how the snow moves around. You're watching the scene that's inside. You're hearing the music that comes out of it. Like you're looking intently with everything that you have to study every detail so that you could recall it from memory. So notice is the idea here. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. It's like we're looking eagerly and intently at the glory of the Lord that is to be revealed. Look what it says here. We are being what? Transformed. We are being transformed. We're not being conformed. We're being transformed. God doesn't want to do anything with the old material that was us. He makes all things new. And so we are being transformed into the same image. The same image as what? As the glory of the Lord. We know what that image is, don't we? It's the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that the purpose? We've all been predestined to be conformed to his image. It's the idea of us being molded into the perfect model of Christ. And so as we behold that glory, we become more transformed to be like him. It says here, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the spirit. In other words, it's the spirit's work that as we are beholding the glory of Christ, he then transforms us into the image of of Christ. Now, why does he bring that up and why is that important? Because unless we are being transformed into the image of Christ and discipleship in the word of God is the catalyst that makes that happen, unless the abundant life is being had in our lives, we will never be executing the brand new spirit wrought, righteous, much more enduring ministry that has been provided for the church age. What you'll find is a lot of people who like to show up to a building, open their Bibles and get all the mind candy that they can possibly stuff up here, put their hands underneath their bottoms, and then walk out unchanged people ready to move on with the day. That's not what Jesus died for. That's not what he came to do. He came to do more. In fact, he came to do much more. And it cost him his life in such a way as which God orchestrated all history to bring it to this pinnacle point in order to turn around and lavish gifts of grace upon the body of Christ. Why? Because we are the body of Christ. Therefore, if we are his body, we should be doing his things amongst people. He is our head. We move where the head tells us to go. Chickens with their heads cut off go crazy and don't last long. But you find when they have their head clearly attached, they're doing all kinds of methodical things in order to move forward in life. It's the same with the church. The church cannot afford in this age, at this time in history, when this pandemic has created such a divine, incredible opportunity for the gospel. We cannot afford to remove our own heads. A decapitated church will not last long. So Christ has supplied everything we need. Now, that's my intro when I have seven minutes. So let me, you can do it. See, building up the body of Christ. I love it. And I encourage you to read chapter four, all of it. But I want to focus in on on something because I want us to recognize the spiritual problem that we have. And then I want to give you a challenge. Chapter four, therefore, and see, this is where I was going to start, but therefore means everything I just said in chapter three. And that's why we had to go there. Therefore, since we have this ministry, ha ha, what ministry? The spirit wrought, 
righteous, enduring ministry that's now been given to the church age. Everybody see that? It's completely different from the law. So now that we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. Why? Because when we talk about putting feet on this ministry and applying it to this sin-sick world, we start to lose heart pretty quickly. The world's a depressing place. And we lose heart fast. So notice, don't lose heart. Watch what he says here. But we've renounced things hidden because of shame. In other words, the things that I used to be ashamed of and I was involved in, I've renounced those before the Lord. I'm not involved in them anymore. They don't have any bearing on me. And if they don't have any bearing on me, they can't tie me down and put me in bondage and trap me because it's not things according to the world I'm subservient to anymore. I'm now subservient to the things of Christ. This is the transforming. Putting off the old, putting on the new. Everything that Jesus died to make possible. He says here, not walking in the craftiness and adulterating the word of God. Not manipulating it for my own personal gain, and that's the end of chapter 2 that we didn't get to cover. But by the manifestation of truth, and that can only happen by the Spirit of God in us, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. In other words, we now have this ministry, and we shouldn't lose heart because our ministry is now one of divine power, and we walk in integrity to dispense it. Now, as we are giving the gospel, and notice verse 3 here, and even if our gospel is veiled, Now, see, we wouldn't understand what veiled means if we didn't see three. Even if when we give the gospel to people, it's concealed. Watch this. It is veiled to those who are what? Perishing. And the Greek construction of this word right here means a slow death is what it means. You are in the process of dying at a snail's pace continually. If our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are continuing in a death mode. Now, here's what's interesting about verse 3. Does everybody see that it presupposes that we are using our boldness of speech to dispense this ministry of the Spirit? Does everybody see that? How can you reject a gospel that you don't hear? Everybody see that? Even if our gospel is veiled, even if people listen to it, I don't want anything to do with that. You're going to have that. You're going to have opposition. You're going to have persecution. But that opposition and that persecution should never generate a fear that causes us to capsize our obedience. It's easy to do. I mean, let's be honest. Isn't it easy to sit in your home and just not care about other people? Isn't it easy to dismiss the people who go by you? Even when the Holy Spirit goes, I know I should talk to that person but I'm afraid that dot, dot, dot. Afraid that what? Afraid that God's word won't return void? Afraid that the Holy Spirit won't move upon them? Afraid that they won't turn to the Lord? Afraid that they won't understand that their sin is a personal offense against an almighty creator? That they won't understand that Jesus has supplied the greatest gift that they've ever had in their life? Is this what we're afraid of? No, I'm afraid of what I'm going to look like afterwards. Does everybody see the dam that keeps the gloriously flowing ministry of the Spirit from pouring forward out of the church? How did this happen? Look at verse 4. In whose case the God of this world, who's that? Satan. You think that Satan's out there actively seeking to dispense his ministry at every opportunity? Yeah, in fact, that's how we got where we're at, isn't it? 
That's how we got what we see every day. So look what it says here. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Because they refuse to believe, he's blinding them. Satan is actively blinding people. Why? Well, look what it says here. So that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Because what happens if they see that light? They turn to the Lord. They believe. And so Satan is working overtime, doing everything he can to keep us distracted. You want to know why you hear about spirit, crazy, wacko, strange things or visions and apparitions and things in third world countries? Because they don't have a TV feeding it to them 24 hours a day. We've got so many distractions here, we can't see the Lord if we wanted to. People are dull, they're numb. Over there, they don't have those luxuries. And so Satan goes to greater lengths to deceive them and to lead them astray. Does everybody see why this spirit-led, righteous, enduring, much more ministry is so important for the church to be dispensing? Would you agree that it's important? Yes. Pick up your paper. I'm wrestling with the Lord. What should I preach on, God? What should I preach on? The other morning, I'm rocking the baby back to sleep. It's 4 a.m., and it drops on my head like a bomb. It's the reason why you prepared this a few months ago, to look at this. And he brought a quote to my mind that was incredible. D.L. Moody. He's been coming to my mind a lot lately. Here's what he said. By the way, he lived in the 1800s. He was a great evangelist. He'll go ahead and he'll, he'll tell you in his writings, I'm nobody special. It's what God chooses to use me to do. It's no different for any of us. I've made it a rule that I wouldn't let a day pass without speaking to someone about their soul's salvation. And if they didn't hear the gospel from the lips of others, that shall hear the gospel from my lips. You know what that means? It means that in a year of D.L. Moody's life, 365 people heard the gospel. Every day. Every day. Somebody heard about the death of Jesus Christ for sins and his glorious resurrection and the free offer of eternal life. And if they believe, they will be saved. Or maybe the simple dispensing of John 3.16. Maybe it was a fact that a gospel tract was left somewhere and prayed over for the hopes Lord uses for your glory. Whoever needs it, have them grab it, have them put it in their pocket, have them read it now, doesn't matter. One of my really good friends who has the heart of an evangelist, he got saved because he was in a bathroom and I think he was high on something. And he looked down and there was a gospel tract. Guess what? He read it, came to faith in Christ. Opportunities abound in the church. The Spirit wants them badly to happen. Why? Because it's his ministry. So I'm calling this the Moody Challenge. I want to challenge you. And here's what I'll go ahead and tell you. We're going to fail. There's going to be a day that goes by. It might not happen. I'm not asking for perfection. I'm not saying you need to check this off to be a Christian. I'm not saying you have to check this off to be a good Christian. What I'm saying is people are worth it because God thinks that they're worth it. The lost need life. And who else is going to give it to them? It's no coincidence that God works relationally. Every single one of us here have been given everything that we need to see the job done before our very eyes. So now here's the question I ask. This is so you can take home and put on your refrigerator. What avenues do I have before me that can be used to share the gospel? Raise your hand if you have a Facebook account. 
Nope, you're all liars. Jesus has a Facebook account through you. See how that works? Yeah. Don't raise your hand at all, anybody, if you posted about politics sometime over the past three months. See, we spoke with great boldness on that. But that's not a spirit-led topic, is it? We'll post pictures about our kids till the cows come home. Good grief, the government and the FBI probably all have files on our children as much as we post them on the internet. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time we promoted the cross and the resurrection of Jesus? How many of you see somebody when you go walking throughout the day? How about visiting Walmart? People at Walmart need Christ. People at Aldi need Christ. Everyday routine things. You know what makes the difference? Lord, show me where you want me to speak here. Show me where I can dispense this great ministry that you've entrusted at this time in history for your glory. That's all it takes. That's it. It's just looking for God to open a door. Well, I'm afraid what I'm going to say when I get in the midst of it. Why? Won't God give you that? Do we really believe that God will open a door of opportunity and when we trust him to walk through it, he's going to be like, you're on your own. Let's see how it goes. That's not our God. Our God desires, get this, he desires for every person to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. He desires it. You know what that means? It means it comes deep from here with God. I can't put words on that. I can't even put my thoughts around that. But you know what? His word tells us. Therefore, it's true. So I encourage you. It is fulfilling this mission statement that will keep us from burying Grace Bible Church in 20 years. It's not asking us to do anything that isn't biblical. It's not asking us to do anything that we are inadequate to perform. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills, right? And Cheryl gets to milk him. <laughs> he can do exceedingly abundantly more than we could ever ask or think. What are the avenues that God wants to use in your life to reach people? One person a day, just one person a day. That's it. Can you imagine? Imagine for a second. Look around. Look around real quick. Mitch, look at that. Look at that real quick. I'm sorry for going long. Look at that uh, clipboard right there on top of the, the shelf. Tell me what the number is. Is it not on there? Somebody's slacking. Okay. Let's say that we got 125 people here. Okay. Let's say that every person shares the gospel with 365 people. Let's make it a little bit easier. 150 people throughout the year. Let's say that half of those people respond. That's 75 people that respond to the gospel who are brand new born again. And you count that happening on every situation. I don't know about you, but a discipleship problem is the type of problem I like to have. Is that what you want? I tell you this, that's what God wants. So think about it. Pray about it. In fact, I'm going to dare you. Ask the question, Lord, is this what you want me to do? Because I tell you what, he'll answer. Let's pray. God, thank you for our time together. Thank you for this important spirit-wrought ministry of righteousness that abounds and that endures. You've given it to the church, graciously given, 
freely given by the death of your son. And Father, if our hearts have never known the joy of seeing what it is of a person believing in Christ for the first time, God, fill us with exceeding joy. Make us willing servants, Lord, for your purposes. Every avenue that we have, whatever comes to our minds, I pray, Lord, we would not be able to sleep until we have come to terms with you about fulfilling our ministry. How much greater it is than football. How much greater it is than lunch. How much greater it is than anything else we would ever do in our lives to tell people about the death and resurrection of our Lord. Thank you that we have something to tell. Thank you that you've supplied the means to tell it. It's in Jesus' name.